pick up. So the second bang is uh, it's not my hands. <laughs> It's uh, it's Diwali. Diwali. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I love Diwali. Okay, that's a shame that I'm missing that, actually. But yeah, welcome. This is uh, Radio Zaza, short for Radio Zaddy. Um, this is the podcast for some queer curiosity. Uh, we don't think very hard, so you don't have to either. Um, but yeah, Daisy, how are you? How have you been? Hello. Um, I'm not too bad, thanks. Um yeah, been okay. Had a bit of a, a busy day at work. Where um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the end ramping of ramping up for Christmas. Yeah, it's sort of ramping up. Um, it's kind of money behind the back of the sofa kind of uh, time of year where clients are saying, "Oh, how about a Christmas advert though?" Um, we've also had Black Friday, yeah, all that kind of stuff <laughs> that existed in the in the old world that apparently is still um, existing mm. online, um, which I've never really engaged with. But um, hey. If you're doing any shopping, it's probably Black Fr- Black Friday at the moment. Yeah, well, hang on. I I'm sure that I um I read an article last year or a couple of years ago that was showing that actually nothing was cheaper on Black Friday. That just slowly leading up to Black Friday, uh, companies were the increasing up. the prices of things. Mm-hmm. They like cranked them up, yeah. So then they could drop them down back to what they sh- would have been anyway. It's all just a absolute swizz, mate. Just basically, don't go shopping in November. Uh, do Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve, like everybody else, in a blind panic, um, where you know your your nan ends up with whiskey and your dad ends up with bath salts and you end up with socks for yourself and you don't actually spend Christmas with anyone. I think that sounds pretty good to me. How are you doing? They, uh, oh, uh, well, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm all over the place. So I was on annual leave last week uh, mm. and I got, I came down with shingles, uh, which is, uh, have you, Nasty. I don't know if you know, but shingles is just, it's chicken pox round two, electric boogaloo. And it Gosh. sucks, but apparently, so apparently, I was I was talking to um, the tutor from my counselling course, and she was saying that so her husband's got shingles as well at the moment, and apparently there's some correlation with if you've had COVID because of the the way it damages your immune system, um, there's a higher likelihood of, of developing shingles than sort of than normal um, after a certain period. So I think that's I was very ill in April. I hope you feel better yeah. soon. <laughs> too. That's Me too. Awful. So I've not been in work this week. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. It's not really anything else to say so, yeah, about that. Yeah, it's not that. really annual leave either if you're sort of bedridden. Yeah. That's all right. I heard you've uh, you've got some things to tell me about, though. Yeah, I do. Um, so this this week, um, right. So you know, I was very I was very inspired by our last episode. You telling me all about the dramatic evening of the Stonewall uprising, which, just to recap, is a. Uh, uh, Oh, can you hear the fireworks? You probably yeah. can. can you actually? Exciting times of Diwali. If you can, if you can hear the Diwali fireworks, they're probably going to continue throughout the episode. So um, uh, you can just imagine it's the sto- you know the bricks being thrown at Stonewall. It was uh, yeah the Stonewall <laughs> uprising. Um, Hannah spoke about last time, which uh, spanned a number of evenings in the summer of uh, 1969 in the heart of New York's Greenwich Village. Um, and yeah, your description of these. Uh, of the riots it really got me thinking about the way queer people relate to space and in particular I've been reading I've been reading a lot about night walking and psychogeography lately um, and I wanted to explore the link between queerness mm. and the night and specifically you know what is our relationship as queer people to a city at night so mm. that's the kind of thing I've been thinking about so it's kind of a it's going to take a part of a kind of uh you know brain dump of thoughts um you know part essay yeah have you been out on walks at night or something well you know I used to when I was um you know my university years I was you know I read a lot, I read too much uh Frank O'Hara um and too much Ginsburg and sort of went strolling quite a lot at night because 
you know, it was quite a, a liberating experience to be quite, you know, I went to quite a, um, a safe university. It was in the middle of Surrey, um, actually, you know, surrounded by like woods and stuff. Mm. Um, and it felt very kind of safe and secluded. Cute. And, you know, being out at night in London in a city, I think is very different. And, you know, a lot of, you know, these victorian gentlemen you kind of talk about and write about night walking you know the very um it's a really privileged position to be able to go out at night and not necessarily have somewhere to go um and to kind of consider it your space and that kind of ownership so i'm kind of going to explore um explore that so we so we know that a lot of um you know queer work um and queer people you know queer people's work takes place at night uh whether that's in the theater you know bar work drag performance art or even um uh, perhaps sex work for example hmm. and uh, queer people have a very specific relation um to the street uh, in particular and specifically um the city uh, street at night so i'm going to be talking about the street uh not the streets the street a shocking 24 percent of homeless young people identify as lgbtq so that's you know that's quite significant as well wow. and the city yeah the city street at night can be read as a very uh, migratory space for queer people um and you know there's loads of Literary and cinematic references, um, coming to and from work, uh, the night in relation to nightlife and clubbing, or as a place, unfortunately, where many of us have experienced um, hassle or or even harassment. The street is also uh, a place of public spectacle, um, and a lot of the time LGBT people aren't... uh, afforded the luxury of um being invisible at night um and in the street so i think um the way that um the way that um you know some writers if they're kind of male or or straight and and cis the way they write about the street is going to be very very different to how queer people experience uh, the city and the street and and life outside you know the safety of um four walls of home for example mm, yeah. so one of the slogans from the gay liberation front uh, which is an activist group was out of the closets and onto the streets which i like which yeah. i like as a little as a kind of quote and this was put on uh, lots of the banners and you know any kind of pride march or protest these banners would be would be shown out of the closets and onto the streets so it's very much you know encouraging people to you know, metaphorically and physically come out of the closet and to come outside and to kind of take up space. And in all kind of pride yeah. pride marches, um, I mean, something that I was thinking about a lot is the lack of, you know, physical um, pride marches this year. Obviously, there's been a lot of protests um, recently and across the summer where people were, you know, this need to take to the street and to kind of show their faces and show up for causes they truly believed in. Yeah, I think there's really something... Uh, that that quote, you know, out of the closet into the street, because I I just think that there's been so much history of of queerness only being allowed not not just to be in the closet as as like not out at all, but mm. only but in a sense that you could only be queer in your own home, you know, within the privacy of your home. Even if you even if you were out, mm. you were only out to your very close friends, and you'd only do or talk about queer things mm. behind closed doors. Yeah. Um, and and it's still to, you know to this day like still get called out at the, on the street for holding hands or stared at and Definitely. just yeah there's there's this place on the street that needs occupying more i mean when when uh, homosexuality was decriminalized um originally it it said that 
you know, gay men could, could you know, it wasn't illegal for them to um, engage in, you know, sexual practice, but it had to be in, like, privacy of a, of a home where nobody else was even in the building. You know, that was one of the, mm. the specifications. And you're just like, God, you know... Imagine if you live wow. in a block of flats, you have to go around saying like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to bang tonight. Can you all please go for a, go for a stroll? You know, it just doesn't... That's adding so many layers of shame. It's like, mm. okay, fine, fine, you can do it. But only if, like, not even a house mouse can hear you. Like, you need to do it in a vacuum, Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So one of the things that I am going to... Uh, sort of introduce now is uh the term um you may have heard of it is uh the word flaneur um have you heard of this word oh no flaneur it sounds French. flaneur um so I, i'm gonna look at um the concept of uh flaneur critically in comparison uh, with the lgbt community um flaneur is a french noun used to describe a certain type of um uh, walking person so it literally means stroller or mm. saunterer and there's loads of um there's loads of essays about this and loads of um novels and, and texts uh describing the flaneur but ian sinclair who's one of um, my favorite writers uh, describes the flaneur as uh, the stalker is a stroller who sweats a stroller who knows where he is going but not why or how so the idea mm. is um the flaneur is a role of uh, active spectatorship someone who exists within the structure but uh, defines oneself as deliberately kind of a t- detached from it so you can imagine these kind of dandies walking around paris kind of just walking as a as a form of kind of personal entertainment and the you get a lot of the yeah. you know you, you think of like poets and, and novelists kind of um ambling with no destination in mind you know despite this very clear goal which is to observe and to comment on um society and to be at once uh, part of a place but to be kind of on the outside observing it like passing through yeah so if you look there are loads of absolutely loads of historic kind of lgbt texts and poetry that have the narrator as a, a flaneur of sorts you know um work of uh, James Baldwin, Allen Ginsberg, Frank O'Hara, uh, they all examine the tensions between the straight and the queer space in their literary work. And it's all kind of from this point of view as a um, as a kind of a stroller, someone who is walking through these streets and walking through this kind of landscape of um, of queerness versus um, maybe, you know, straight, a straight experience. Lots of poetic themes of urbanism and walking and, and walking as, as writing and, you know, all the subtle differences between flannerism and, and vagrantism about sort of the people who are who are just kind of captured in, in poetry and in fiction, the people who are kind of spotted in and around the city, you know, especially like cities like New York and London. And I just want to kind of look at like how queer people are are looking at this idea of kind of strolling and, and flannerism. I read the essay mm. um, Street Haunting by Virginia Woolf. It's, uh, it's an essay that celebrates the city's ability to dissolve individual identity amongst a busy crowd. And it's kind of talking about going wandering down Oxford Street, you know, for a very frivolous um, goal, like, you know, buying a pencil or something. Um, and kind of getting lost yeah. in the kind of grand architecture and, and all the different people that um, that you encounter. Um, so I've got a little quote to kind of give you an idea of um, what, what Virginia, how she describes walking at night. And it goes like this. The evening hour too gives us the irresponsibility which darkness and lamplight bestow. We are no longer quite ourselves. As we step out of the house on a fine evening, we shed the self our friends know us by and become part of that vast Republican army of anonymous trampers whose society is so agreeable after the solitude of one's own room. So I think this very much uh, 
encapsulates kind of out of the closet and onto the street and this idea of just going out and getting lost and 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 shedding shedding the self which is kind of trapped in your bedroom um and becoming something something else entirely we are no longer quite ourselves i think that line is really yeah a little bit a little bit creepy virginia honestly mm, yeah i mean it's it's a bit creepy but it's like i don't know it, it feels a bit like i can't really explain it it feels a bit wrong to me because it feels like because she also says you know that we shed the selves that our friends know us to be and we become something else but it's almost what it sounds like she's saying is that she sheds a bit of a false self and feels more herself on the street like walking at night and it's not really mm. like uh, being someone being the wrong self yeah i don't know it, it's it, sort of fine yeah finding yourself within a crowd or within you know other people who are sort of aimless and yeah yeah just yeah it's um interesting yeah really interesting bits yeah and it's just so i was just i've been you know i've been going round and round thinking about this you know why is there this queer obsession um with the night and you know why do queer writers talk about the night and talk about walking at night um you know what is it about going out into an urban space and wandering without direction um or or with the intent of becoming invisible um amongst the vagrants you know i said i kind of you know, maybe this is just me, but I kind of find the ritual of going out um, clubbing quite like that. You know, the idea of kind of getting lost in a crowd and, and preparing yourself to be sort of anonymous, um, but also part of something bigger, you know, part of a, a queer scene. Mm. Yeah, I also think there's something to like being in the in the darkness. Mm. You don't need a mask anymore because you're, you're in some way hidden already. Mm. So it slips a little bit and you can feel slightly more like yourself without, because you do feel slightly under cover of darkness, you mm, know? Yeah. You feel protected in some way. Definitely. And we sort of, we touched on this briefly in um, the episode where I, I was talking about house music and how nightclubs became this kind of safe haven for queer people. And I think the the street at night is the equivalent of that. You know, if you can't get into a, a bar or, or a theatre or, or, or even someone else's house, home you take to the streets and the street at night is going to cover you um yeah so yeah. the connections uh, that i've kind of drawn between flannerism and queerness uh number one is idleness something that you mentioned mm. uh, in the description of the stonewall uprising was that many of the people uh, protesting and in the area taking interest were there because they sort of had nowhere else to be or perhaps you know no reason to um to to leave which might be more accurate so this idea of like people kind of hanging around mm. and like um, would that have, you know, would that uprising not have happened if it was a, you know, a, a quieter bar, a less pivotal spot, if it hadn't have been in the sort of gay village? So there's quite a lot about like, you know, people being idle and how uh, protests and, 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 and maybe even yeah. things like crime, ex you know, happen because of um, because of idleness. Yeah, and definitely like what you say about it being in a very prominent space, if it had been anywhere else, if it had been in the suburbs or, or somewhere uh, with a much smaller population you know it wouldn't I don't think it would have had the same response from from the public there wouldn't have been enough people around to really make it such an iconic moment yeah um the second connection I found was um the flanners kind of um the withdrawal from society and how queer people are seen to kind of withdraw from um society in some way um maybe just a rejection of the kind of heter heteronormative practice and this is where you kind of get to the limitations of the the term flannerism um, and why I don't think we can necessarily apply it to queerness. Um, if you think of the traditional Parisian flanner, uh, it was typically masculine um, and definitely from a position of racial and uh, class privilege. 
so not dissimilar to the stereotype of the dandy that we've discussed before um but it, it implies this certain level of voyeurism and objectification which i think is what separates it from the queer urban wanderer because a queer person might you know be in the streets as a matter of kind of necessity rather than a sort of privilege a desire to kind of walk and so in my opinion um a queer night prowler uh, teeters very much between safety and danger um, between escape and belonging and there's this almost kind of primitive suspicion as well that people of the night are somewhat mischievous you know a little bit naughty <laughs> and I think that's very you know applied to a little bit naughty um kind of applied to queer people you know if people are kind of a fear you know what is it that people maybe fear about groups of queer people and and maybe or maybe don't understand less you know not so much fear but um don't understand well yeah fear usually comes from lack of understanding too mm, we fear the unknown definitely. don't we um and a, a guy called uh, matthew beaumont um wrote in um a book called night walking um he wrote it's a sign of social or spiritual dereliction um the idea of kind of being idle at night Oof. and you know if you're kind of socially derelict um or spirit or spiritually derelict you might be kind of just wandering around and i think i mean that's uh that's dulcet superstore Quite at damning. Four, four in the morning isn't it just yeah <laughs> yeah that's true yeah um yeah as i've said before like most you know most queer people unfortunately do not have the privilege of being invisible uh by nature we've always stood out in one way or another which makes it virtually impossible for us to be the kind of desired street phantom that defines the flaneur deliberately like dissolving into the city passive and uh detached yeah um so i so i've been yeah interested I, i'm really interested in psychogeography and, and the writing of ian sinclair um as i mentioned before but i often feel Can like you he's tell me what psychogeography is yeah yeah so it's sort of the um the intersection between um psychology and and geography so it's kind of crit you know looking critically at um at space and place um, and kind of sights um, that encourage you to kind Is of it like engage. how it affects us? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm, yeah, because I, well, I was thinking about this because I'm really missing, just on a very slight note, like I'm missing having a specific place to work, like an mm, office, because mm. I just can't engage properly at home because this is my home it's not the place where work is done yeah so I don't work and I want that is that the sort of thing that kind of connection yeah, exactly. association yeah exactly and um mm. a lot of the time psychogeography can be applied to literature you know Virginia Woolf writes a room of one's own um and she also writes about street haunting you know it's very much about place and you know a, a writer's relationship to um to their surroundings and to um you know concentration as well so yeah i've been so when i read in sinclair i i often feel like he's writing about um so he writes a lot about london um and he writes a lot about you know the m25 or the overground and but he writes about this version of a city that i i feel like i've never actually visited let alone uh lived in for the best part of my last decade um and i was kind of looking at the text and i was like well where, where do i fit as a a queer person as a you know as a queer woman um where is the evidence of people like me walking these streets um i was just thinking about this um so much i was thinking about how important it is to you know to document and to navigate and record journeys and experiences and um you know make zines and you know put on uh, cabarets and record them and you know i think having a lot of this stuff documented online is going to be really you know helpful and you can go to the archives and you know bishopsgate archive archives and mm. this you, you know it's really important i was kind of like god this is actually really important you know where are the books chartering uh, the lgbt wanderer 
Mm, yeah, Daisy, you should write it. I think you know. I think I'm. I think I'm onto something. Um, so I mean, yeah. yeah so there's a lot about like queer nightlife. Um, you know, lots of examples about clubs and things like that. But um, queer nightlife and culture is not only about kind of reclaiming. Uh, space but also of recording a suppressed cultural history which was previously only really afforded to men a lot of the documents Mm. that I've read are just you know men doing this and men doing that and having a having a jolly old time and they kind of talk about like sex workers and and women and 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 kind of vagrants on the street as um as something very separate and you know an object of their you know of their um yeah observation really um and there's nothing from the point of view of of the sex worker or the or the woman passing in the night or you know or the beggar yeah like they only exist because he observed them mm, exactly um which is a little bit troubling so um yeah so in both instances um yeah the kind of the woman or um or a sex worker or someone um the the other is sort of denied a right to um the city at night in their own terms so unaccompanied, unaccompanied women at night were often uh, penalised for being idle and disorderly, whereas gentlemen such as I don't know Charles Dickens was hailed and was hailed and admired. Um, so it's just how people have been treated in history who are out at night. You know, men it's like oh have a jolly old time, pat on the back, good sport. Whereas um, you know women or, or queer people may have been seen as yeah idle and disorderly. Um, and we've been yeah, sort just of met with suspicion. Yeah, exactly. Met with suspicion and punished. And, you know, what what possible reason could you have for being out alone at night? Mm. Yeah. And this sort of vagueness, um, the vagueness in a flaneur's purpose um, would be linked to vagrancy in anyone else, especially if they were marginalised in any way. Mm. So I was uh, I was thinking about like the spaces where you could exist outside and the role of the outdoor space in relation to like venues and indoor spaces being closed permanently you know there's been a a kind of spate of of venues and lgbt bars and stuff being closed down over the last like Mm. you know five ten years um and so you know there's this results in very limited places for queer people to congregate and queer people to meet and i just think there's you know a real problem and something that isn't really you know it's kind of talked about um amongst the queer community but not really in relation to um why culture might be sort of um diminishing slightly and i think it is to do with not having you know mm. this safety and, and places to meet so what we see instead is uh outdoor hookups um becoming like a lot more popular you know hooking up at, um outdoors has always been um has always been the case in in cities they're often are you talking about sex i'm talking about sex you're talking about sex and all that all the i was i once heard someone talking about Hampstead heath and how you couldn't go there at night because all the bushes would be shaking exactly you know, exactly people dogging in the bushes um so this is you know this is very much uh yeah bec- yeah as a result of um two people having to negotiate a sexual encounter because they have uh, no access to an alternative safe space to do so. So obviously the residents of Hampstead Heath, you know, and even the police would sort of turn a blind eye because they know that that is what goes on in the in the park at night, uh, a night upon the heath. Well, and if you're not allowed to even have sex in your own building because there's other people around who might, oh, God forbid, hear or suspect that you're having sex, exactly. if you're queer, then go to go to a bush and yeah. then you can run away anonymously and they don't know where you live if you get away yeah definitely and i think actually oh, you know God, like yeah. what you were saying about shame you know this is people being closeted or you know without having to face um judgment from whoever they live with you know it could be you know a marital partner or even family members who people aren't out yet or out to um 
so of course you do you know you do see a rise in um in cruising and, and cottaging and alfresco bonking which which may you know way more, may well have like started um out of a kind of necessity but it soon turned into quite a like you know desirable and uh you just very popular sexual activity mm, yeah i was gonna i was gonna say yeah like it's not all because of shame or it's like now it's kind of a bit of a thrill yeah definitely a lot of people and i'm sure there always were you know straight people also doing it because it was a bit exciting but you know for queer people it, it kind of came from this this history of not of, of being um shamed into hiding yeah. Mm. yeah 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 and i think that showed you know while homosexuality was decriminalized um it was still quite you know it does, there's no evidence to say that it wasn't still rife in you know in indoor spaces and in people's homes like you have no idea places of work and you know there was still even though this homosexuality was you know not illegal there were still things in place you know section 28 was was happening you know lots of yeah there was just homophobia sort of everywhere really and and a lot of that would take place in the mm. home and and people would um sort of need to go outside and to kind of have this anonymous yeah thrill in order to kind of yeah kind of have that sense of belonging and, and freedom and you know yeah. this really relates to um queer people still struggling to find a place to physically uh, belong um so yeah let's let's mm. yeah it's Hampstead Heath um at night popular gay cruising area still um, prime site for uh, sexual hookups and uh, frequented even by uh, famous gays such as uh, Sir George Michael. Oh, goodness. A bit exotic. Yeah, so, and it would usually, obviously, cruising there would uh, take place after sunset um, until around 2am. So, like, the real kind of dead of night. Yeah, shaking bushes uh, galore. Um, <laughs> and... It's like, it doesn't feel windy, but all the bushes are <laughs> yeah. Why are you walking out here alone, madam? <laughs> I mean, that's another thing. So there's there's virtually uh, no documented history of uh, of women's cruising. And mm. uh, something that... So there's a, a group in London called um, Queer Tours of London. They kind of do these active tour... Uh, they're the, yeah, a group of um, queer people who do these walking tours around London. In in one of their tours, they talk about um, uh, the kind of much erased history of women's cruising. Uh, someone called Nell Andrew says um, it, that it's difficult to find examples because of the usual erasure of queer women's sexualities. Obviously, it wasn't seen as such a crime um, for women to be gay, but it was definitely um, absolutely out of the question that two men could... Um, physically engage yeah. well I mean it was never it was never technically illegal for yeah. women to be gay that's the thing but I think that you know combined with the idea that women shouldn't be out on the street alone mm. and also the sort of shame that is as we've discussed part of queer history it feels like probably that sort of like queer female cruising was probably done somewhere else or done and it was just done in a completely different way that you can't you can't look at it in the same lens yeah you, know? you definitely can't um and a lot of like a lot of their kind of history has to come from, um, you know, stories and, and um, anecdotes that people have, you know, told verbally. And, you know, a lot of the examples of um, queer women's first sort of same-sex experiences and encounters happen in kind of clubs or pub toilets and, and places like that, you know, nightclubs. Mm. And, you know, especially when... Still all indoors. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, somewhere... If you don't have a safe space to take a sexual partner, um, it wasn't even seen as like a legitimate act. So yeah, there is this kind of rise in women having sex in public public places. Um, and obviously Hampstead Heath uh, Ladies Pool was the sort of equivalent um, for women, you know, to meet up and, and to kind of meet and then, uh, you know, fuck. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is so naughty. I was just, I was also just having a flashback to being eight, like when I was 18, I had my first girlfriend. We couldn't go to either of our houses. <laughs> so we used to go to public toilets in Sirencester and just make out. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> what a throwback for me. What a throwback. Um, well, I'm glad that, I'm glad that came, uh, came out of this. Mm. <laughs> Um, so something interesting, um, sort of my, uh, one of my final points is a, um, so in 2016, Amy LeMay, um, who is a queer writer and radio presenter who you may have heard of, um, became London's first appointed night star, which, which means that, uh, she was tasked with the responsibility of facilitating London, uh, London's thriving, London to thrive as a a 24 hour city. And to champion London's nightlife, um, both in the UK and also the kind of international presence and also um, kind of safeguarding venues across the city. And I just I think it's really interesting that um, this role of the night star was given to a a queer person. Mm. And I guess this is, you know, what better to have somebody who has, um, you know, spent a career, build, built a career working in live events and, and production. And Amy LeMay sort of is one of the uh, brains behind um, Ducky, um, which is obviously quite a, it's one of a really long running um, queer club, uh, club night called Ducky. And I think, you know, th- mm. um, for queer people... Um, that makes me think of, um, you know, Stormy Delavery, or, or I think that's her name. So she was the she was the lesbian that shouted in the Stonewall riots, you know, why doesn't anybody do something? Mm. And everyone did. So she was um, she was like a volunteer bodyguard or street patroller mm. on mm. on Christopher Street, and they called her the guardian of the les- of lesbians in the village. <laughs> so she was like, you know, the the patroller to make sure that women were safe at night. And it just kind of has that. I don't know. It has that real vibe mm. of, to me. Yeah. I just thought. Yeah. I just thought it was. It was brilliant, and I think maybe you know queer people are um, sort of experts um, in the night, in the night times, um, mm. and you know we have to be a lot more flexible. You know the w- working hours, um, also like you know convenience and necessity, shopping, entertainment, all that. You know all these factors contribute to this um, sort of holistic, round the clock lifestyle that uh, Sadiq Khan was sort of aiming for when he appointed the nights are. Mm. And you know, obviously, um, this was all pre-covid and i think um you know amy lemay has quite a a job cut out for her now to help save uh some of these venues and some of these especially oh, yeah. um there's a huge like lens from the lgbt community like you know huge pressure to say like you need to keep these venues open and yeah there's been such a you know decline in queer spaces um in the city and i think it's just this is obviously not helping and they're you know Obviously, they, some places have been bailed out by the government, but a lot of it is, you know, crowdfunding. And I just mm. think it's because people do find this, you know, there is such a necessity um, to keep these spaces open. But, you know, mm. if, if they do close, then people will people will take to the streets, you know. Yeah, well, I was going to say, let's start like queer night walking groups. So, you know, my, my favourite queer, uh, Claire Balding, oh, yeah. um, does that. She does a podcast radio show called Ramblings where she just walks with mm. people and talks to them about their lives. And, you know, actually people, some people do like walking therapy as well. It's very cathartic. We should start a queer night walking group where... You know, safety in numbers. Oh my god, we just absolutely walk somewhere. Should. We could just do a tour with of... without purpose, but just yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pick a kind of gay area, um, and pick. You know, we could just do a kind of a walk down like old, you know, old Compton Street or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, t- uh, old Compton exactly. Street. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, we're allowed to meet one person outside of our home at the moment. So when you're up in Cambridge, let's go on a night walk. Yes. Um, the night walkers of Cambridge is a whole... Um, there was people who do um, climbing and um, parkour. And I'll lend you the book. Oh, cool. Um, or just look it up. Kind of Yeah, night, yeah, night walkers in Cambridge. and the Night climbers, sorry. And the, these people are kind of scale um, scale the, the buildings and the churches and university university buildings in Cambridge. Just sort of out of you know just a kind of a draw to it mm. you know let's just i bet some of them some of them were were queer and um <laughs> so yeah um yeah let's definitely organize yeah. a, a walking tour um i would love that yeah i think there's definitely more to think yeah. about and i'm not quite i'm not quite at the end of i'm not sure what's where i where i land um i used to think you know in my early days you know at university i used to think that the flaneur was such a fantastic uh, concept and obviously as i get older and more cynical i'm like oh hang on what do I have in common with this um, kind of fanciful, privileged dandy who can just wander around all day and all you mean night? Other than the campness. <laughs> other than the campness, yeah. What does it mean if I skip around um, Old Compton Street? Yeah. Um... <laughs> well, look. Let's let's make it happen, okay? Let's well, let's reclaim it for the queers. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Thanks for that listening to uh, Draft One thanks, of my, my no, thesis. That was really great. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing the end of the end of your thoughts if they ever come to a head, but I feel like it might be quite a conflicted area for you. <laughs> yeah, wow, thank you so much. Yes, so I guess like kind of kind of sort of sticking with a a spooky theme, I suppose, in a way, <laughs> but well, I don't know. You'll 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 find out, you'll hear. So because because I've been ill, because I've been ill for sort of quite a while now. I've been in bed a lot. I've been reading, sitting around in my pajamas, drinking tea, mm. sleeping a lot. Um, and I had this book on my reading list for ages because it's. Um, I listened to a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left, mm-hmm. which is these three comedians. They talk about things, often serial killers and things like that. But they did this one episode on chaos magic. Mm. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was weird, but um, I got the book. Um, it's called Condensed Chaos. That was their main text. And it's by this guy called Phil Hine. And I, um, I've been reading it. And I, I like it. And it, like, I, okay, I cannot stress enough how much I can't explain what it is. I, I can't, I just, I'm not there yet. But so far, it's like... You haven't got the, the coin definition down. <laughs> Well, it's just it's just really compli- complicated. You've got and to like, sell it like I'm a drunk at the pub. You've got to sell it like I'm at a bus stop. Well, I can't. So I'm just going to tell you how I've been reading it. So I've been reading it sort of from my very anxious person perspective. And there's a lot of stuff in it about like, you know, being very much grounded in the present moment and being sensitive to what's actually going on mm. and one and not doing what I do, which is projecting forwards and imagining all these scenarios where you've already failed or you've already been murdered, which is a big one for me, and all these things that could go wrong. Mm. So instead of doing that, you you are supposed to be just in the present and also don't look forward and imagine where you've already succeeded because you're also then um, overriding anything that's actually going on. Okay. So it, there's lots of that stuff. And I was like, okay, maybe I should try and do some of this because I am constantly imagining... I'm constantly limiting myself by already imagining that whatever I want to do has already failed. So I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to take it on board as much as I can 
in and out of my sleep states. Uh, yeah. But as a follow up, I've just ordered a book called uh, Becoming Dangerous, Witchy mm. Femmes, Queer Conjurers and Magical Rebels. And like, the title says it all, right? <laughs> it seems, and they're actually, I don't know, it just Please feels lend like it to this me. real draw. <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I will absolutely lend it to you. So it seems like there's a real draw towards witchcraft for queer people, witchcraft, wicca, you know, that sort of mm. thing. And I was wondering about it, like, oh, am I becoming one of those wicker queers or, or you know, those people who talk about star signs really in depth? Because I've always, I've always disliked that is, it. That is people... all of the queers I've met in London, to be honest. Yeah. Well, exactly. Like, Zodiac. And, and I feel terrible because it, it, I really dislike talking about star signs and I find it so boring. And I, you know, it feels, it feels in many ways very self-indulgent because the conversations I've had with people about star signs have been like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so much a cancer because of these things that I do. And, oh, that's very Libra of you. And I'm, it, it feels quite disingenuous because it means that I'm being put in a box and I don't like being in a box. Um, And so it doesn't, it just doesn't really vibe with me and whatever. Anyway, I'm going to stop on that train because I've just called out a bunch of our mutual (laughs) friends. Uh, So let's just move on, move on, move on. Look at you trying to, trying to reset the balance, you Libra. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Yes. Stop it. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. So you've heard, you know, you, you will have heard the terms Wicca, witchcraft, paganism. There's also neo-paganism, which is like a revival. I mean, have you heard of those terms? Yeah. 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 Okay. So the first, I remember the first place I encountered sort of Wicca and witchcraft was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And particularly it's queerness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Like Willow and Tara were just like this lovely queer couple. And they, and you know, it revolved around their mutual love of magic and Mm -hmm. they were just both witches and it was wonderful. And I loved them. And I really for quite a while didn't know why I loved them so much and then I realized and it was just great um but yeah so I I've been wondering why like why is there this association with queer people particularly queer femme people and women with an ex because I don't know do you do you feel like there's an association yeah definitely I mean I spoke about um in the very first episode about um you know pets and and witches and and this kind of connection to like cats and um and being kind of a bit feral Mm. and and yeah I think there's a a definite yeah definite connection between being a bit um you know a bit of an outsider and a bit um yeah something that it can't be comprehended in in wickers and witches forces against the you know the control of straight people I guess (laughs) Exactly, exactly that. And I just, I wasn't sure if it was something I dreamed in my sort of fever dreams. But um, so I'm going to take it back a little bit because I also, you know, in my mind, I just very much accepted that witchcraft was a space usually reserved for women. Mm. Like Wicca and witchcraft, it has a very female implication. And I didn't, you know, there's no, there wasn't any very direct reason for that in my mind. There's nothing, there's not really a particularly female practice in witchcraft. So I, I was looking back at like why we think witches are female. And there was the the Hammer of Witches. It's called the Malleus Maleficarum, which mm. is a, a book that was written in, uh, published in 1487. So wow. quite a while ago. O- overdue library book. Exactly. Very overdue. But it, so it, basically described it was instrumental okay in establishing the witch trials of the early modern period Mm. it describes what witchcraft is and it endorses it has very detailed processes for the extermination of witches like how do you kill them how do you spot them how do you find them Mm. and it you know in that 
period of the witch trials, it was estimated about 50,000 people were burned at the stake for being wow. witches. 80% of those people were women, and most of them over the age of 40. Yeah. And the book... Yeah. Don't you dare be a spinster, because you're a witch. Yeah. So, um, actually, just quickly, um, I used quite a few, quite a number of pages from Wikipedia sources, obviously, but I also read a really good article on Refinery29 and one on, well, actually, a couple on Days Digital, which is a um, witch... Uh, online media platform it's quite cool yep. um <clears throat> but yeah so this this book uh the the hammer of witches it very clearly and repeatedly asserts that women are more likely to participate in witchcraft or sorcery due to qualities that all and only women have it came at it from this very misogynistic angle you know oh well only women are bad and evil and it brings with it you know to this day this intensely misogynistic belief that women are evil witches and they're always going to uh, undercut everyone and mm. they'll just you know turn around and break your heart and at moments and a moment's notice and they and that we all carry in us this potential to be nasty and evil you know and that's mm. still quite prevailing you see it a lot in um sitcoms there's a lot of like very oh these poor guys getting their heart broken by these vicious women you know it's, it it pervades to this day mm. um and you know in the witch trials people would literally accuse women of being witches if yeah. they just had a bad day if they were just like stepped out of line slightly or if someone was bored of them hanging around too much like it was very much just a tool to get rid of a woman in your life god so that kind of solved the question of me like why do we consider witchcraft female Hmm. Okay, so that's where the association comes from. Um, someone who was misogynistic decided that this would be a good way to get rid of a bunch of women. Hmm. So where does the queerness come from in this? And like you said, actually, we, we so often refer to queerness as existing outside of the norm, the heteronormative space, um, and often being depicted as deviant, deviant lifestyle. Hmm. And that has so many parallels with like Wicca and witchcraft. It's, it has that connotation of being a deviance. And that can involve a lot of sexuality as well. Like deviant sexuality mm. for women is just often just wanting it. You yeah. know, the references to, to female sexuality and, and historically that's always, like it's been a no-no subject and it still kind of is today you know they always hide the dildos in the back of Anne Summers <laughs> whatever <laughs> so there like I think that's where the overlap is okay so it's about sexuality and being open about like sexuality sexual variances or, or different sexual practices or you know at the very least there's the implication there that which is a for some reason like but also spinsters <laughs> and it's just all these things that, that it's just, and we it's, don't know and we're confused yes exactly we do and do not want it at any given moment yeah we might as well set them on fire because we don't know they're just too confusing so let's burn them <laughs> but so i have to actually i should tell you i went to a museum in ronda uh, in spain when i was like 16 and me and my younger brother who would have been 14 um mm -hmm. or 13 14 we went to this museum and and um, they had a basement section on witchcraft <laughs> Um, and it had lots of like mashup taxidermy, you know, it had like a, a bat's head sewn onto a tarantula and things like that. It was all very weird. There were torture devices as well used on the witches. There was also mm. many things that definitely looked like dildos. <laughs> um, you know, the, the forbidden tools for female pleasure. One of them genuinely was a modified spin, like spinning wheel um, oh where you'd like sit on the, on like the seat bit and spin the wheel and that turned a kind of an arm that then 
pumped up and down this dildoy bit through this hole in the seat. <laughs> and I just looked at it for a while and I was like, oh, oh, like as a realization of what it was for. Um, and the it witch's had, like, chair. this little description about how it, well, it said something weird like they could only use it on certain days of the month. Like uh-huh. it, it was li- a limited thing. You weren't allowed to, to be sexual apart from on certain days with your special chair. Yeah, don't um, overuse the but, chair. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> exactly. Leave it, Victoria. Don't overuse the chair. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. So, I can't come out today. I can't come to market. I'm. I'm just. I just. I need to rest. <laughs> I have some spinning to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's the idea of witchcraft and magic. They also the the lines are blurred. You know, between what is witchcraft and what what is just like a, a folk practice or or yeah. paganism or. Um, other, another non-monotheistic religion, you know, there's lots of um, nature religions and um, certain ones that are called ethnic faiths um, that I was reading about on Wikipedia. It's very interesting. Um, so there's lots, of, it all kind of blends into anything that's not the mainstream religions, okay? They, they mm. can often be referred to as kind of witchcraft and the pagan religions were also labelled as witchy and evil by, you know, Christianity Um, when it was like beginning to dominate over Europe and things like that. So with that in mind, I was having a look at, you know, who who is identifying as pagan or neo-pagan at the moment. And it turns out that it's quite heavily dominated by non-heterosexual people. I'm going to give you some stats now, okay? Get ready for some numbers, etc. In 2013, a survey of neo-pagans in England, Wales, Canada, Australia and New Zealand found that nearly half of all of the male and female members identified as non-heterosexual. So that's half of men and half of women Mm. in this um, who identified as neo-pagan were not heterosexual. So of and mm-hmm. of those people, three three quarters of the women identified as bisexual, and um, just over half of the men uh, identified as gay. Mm. So it's really you know very a very very strong representation there, way more than the national average uh, for all of these countries. And there's also there's a a, a pagan specialising so a scholar called Christine Hoff Kramer mm. um, said that pagans tend to be relatively accepting of same-sex relationships, BDSM, polyamory, transgender and other expressions of gender and sexuality that are marginalised by mainstream society. And I think this kind mm. of comes back to other episodes we've done, you know, on queer folklore, two-spirit people, uh, how traditional religions and native religions, which are much mm. older than Christianity, much have a much better understanding of the diversity of the human experience you know mm. because they've been around longer yeah they're, they're just getting on with it yeah and they're just like it's also seems yeah, they're like tolerant. they're built into society they're not just like about conforming they're, they're built around the actual people there so i mean sometimes there is conflict mm. um if you do read up on wicca and witchcraft and things there's often an emphasis on the male female binary um on heterosexual pairings um for having kids and stuff mm. obviously there needs to be a sperm and an egg to make a baby and where these come from people often associate with just being a heterosexual pairing and there are there's there's a huge myriad of sects as well individual sects which have uh Mm -hmm. very niche beliefs and some of those are trans exclusionary you know in itself is very harmful um that's not true Mm -hmm. for all of them 
but um, you know, those are some of the common themes that you can find um, being some of the reasons why it might not be so queer friendly. Okay. But yeah, so there's you know there's a there's a queer theme there. About twice as many queer adults identify with a non-Christian faith group. That was as of 2015, uh, Pew Research Center confirmed so a non-christian faith group including paganism and wicca which is you know twice as many than the general population which is you know that's significant um yeah yeah but specifically there seems to be this uh this phenomenon of self-proclaimed witches and neo-pagans and and so i really think there's like this queer theme coming through a high Mm. proportion of people um in these non-mainstream religions are identifying as queer in some way and and you know that obviously isn't the case um for all religions or all um, traditional faiths and nature religions, ethnic faiths, because there will be many that are not dominated by queer people. But, you know, for for the witches and neo-pagans, the quite modern ones do seem to have that that representation. Um, Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think there is something to this, like, predisposition to seeking out witchcraft, magic, you know, that sort of thing. Um, there was an article by it was a, it was one by Amanda Kaur, okay, the one in Refinery Twenty Nine that I mentioned. Now mm-hmm. she she made a really important observation that I thought was well, I thought it was really interesting and and really insightful. She said that among her in, interviewees um, about witchcraft and queerness, most of them or almost all of them had a spiritual childhood in some way, anyway. Okay, so they were involved in faith in their younger years. That would be growing up in a religious household or around religious people in a particularly religious area. And that kind Mm. of theme, I think that probably comes with this this setup. You know, you're set up to accept spirituality in the first place. And it also shows you that through faith and through religion, you can find you can find a lot of love, positivity and community. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people do turn to faith for love, love and acceptance. Mm -hmm. But crucially... For queer people, that is is often followed up with an intense rejection of, of the person that they are fundamentally, you know, something in themselves that they can't change. So, yeah. you know, I mean, as far as my experience and knowledge goes, like that feels like a standard experience of a queer person growing up in or around religion. Yeah, you know? and it's it, it, it's just a bad time. It's just a bad time. And like I at 16 I got quite involved with a bible study group because the like the guy lived across the road and my I was friends with his son and like they it just put it put a, a huge amount of shame on me they used to I tried to come out to a couple of my friends in that in that study group who I thought were very close friends and they completely rejected me and would write prayers for me they'd write down these prayers about how I was going to renounce my gayness and and they gave them to me to read and to you know told me to pray on them and oh wow it just oh just made things a lot worse just sort of the opposite of accepting yeah the absolute opposite of what I was hoping for as well and what I expected but you know I know I know that that's not exclusive to religious upbringings uh, and Mm -hmm. nor is it universal to all religious upbringings you know you can have a bad time even if and no one in your family is religious and you don't grow up in a religious area bigotry doesn't have a religion you know it is a common experience yeah and that you know to feel rejected by religion the mainstream religions and to feel that even if it's not a direct thing I think that there's something to that kind of a collective unconsciousness you pick things up you understand that there's something that some people will not like about you mm. and so then to look you know to look for that alternative uh, forms of faith and community you know of course, you know, no wonder it's dominated, you know, paganism and neo, uh, neo-paganism and 
and and mm. witches and witches yeah. are dominated by queer people because you know if, if they are accepted within those those structures or you know or less i don't know less outcast <laughs> then yeah of course you're going to it makes go sense right so yeah if you're brought up to believe that religion should bring a source of comfort and love but you you experience rejection from the one that you're brought up in or near mm. then you know, that's deeply painful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll reject religion as a whole. I yep. think what that would do, you know, if you're able to move past the kind of imposed self-hatred, I think it turns people to other forms of faith mm. and ones that will do better than the black and white view of sexuality and conformity. And so that is what I think means that um, queer people who have experienced spirituality in some way, I think they turn to these faiths like Wicca or like neo-paganism or witchcraft because they offer a kind of way to structure your spirituality. So it's not just all flying around in the air and you don't know how, what to do or why <laughs> you feel these, this way. But it also is a space that allows you, it's accepting of your queerness so it also and it allows this exploration of your otherness. But it's outside of the constraints of standard religion and therefore should allow you to explore without the usual like shame guilt or fear you know yeah and and so that's you know I think that's that community aspect of it is really important but then you know it is witchcraft okay so um that's another aspect of it and so I think from what I've been reading as well it provides a sense of power and strength mm and control okay in this world of whatever chaos and drama and just absolute bullshit that we're living in yeah um, although you know i'm i'm sure that everybody thinks that the time they live in is chaotic but you know we are going through multiple crises at the moment and um, so i feel like we are looking for some sense of control and it isn't just you know it you know you practice it's um the aim is to practice magic or sorcery or divination or mm. and you know that providing that sense of control and the implied ability to influence the world so you're not like i was thinking about it as this way of you're no longer just being pushed along by this wave but you're learning to ride it you know you're mm. you're being able to to steer yourself some way you're taking surfing lessons exactly you're no longer just adrift you feel like you can control something at least yeah i can definitely i can definitely relate to that like the feeling of being so out out of control um in every you know in every sense of your life of course you would want to mm. you know strive to regain regain some of that power absolutely yeah yeah and if it's you know it's the sense of it's very much a sense of personal power as well rather than a power power that is just in the god you know god whoever that is mm. to you it's you have power. a personal power as well and um amanda core interviewed someone called uh krista and um, they're, so they're a, a queer witch, and they were saying that the reason they drew, they were drawn um, towards witchcraft was that it gave them a sense of personal power. In this world, black, indigenous, and queer people are told they have no power. So to have something that gives me power and, and encourages me to use my voice and my will is invaluable. Yeah, I thought, I thought it, that kind of really, really summarised it perfectly. So it's providing that, that sense of control and, yeah. and that's especially important for people who've had that power held out of their reach for so long. Or you taken know, away what, from them. We are told. Yeah, or taken away. You're right. You may have had it at some point and then it's taken away because of a change in your life. Providing that sense of community, spirituality. And, you know, it's 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 also like it's also reclaiming the word witch. You know, it's been thrown at women with contempt for so long. Like, mm. why not reclaim that? along with all the other words that we're trying to reclaim for ourselves. And I think, you know, witchcraft has taken on this queer quality and it's attracted, as a result, a queer community. 
And I read this one thing that I thought was hilarious. You know, nothing says queer like dancing naked in a field under a full moon with a bunch of other naked women, <laughs> uh, which just sounds sounds really great. So, um, Daisy, I would like to ask uh, my final question. Would you like to join my coven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Where's the invite for Excellent. the naked moon dancing? <laughs> Okay, perfect. I'll send you a um I'll send it with my mind. So that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, so I just I, I didn't I didn't think it would like become so deep, but I, I was found it so interesting and I'm really looking forward to reading that Becoming Dangerous book. Yeah, I think yeah, definitely you know, setting yourself up as the person with power um is, you know, a great queer narrative. Um so often especially in like the, you know the media and even like you know films and books it's about like a queer person maybe losing power or being discriminated against or being in the closet or you know some sort of trauma um and i think there needs to be way more um uh focus given to um film and television and, and media references where um you know they're already they're realizing the power um they are striving mm. for um you know no they already have integrity they don't need to strive for it and, um, you know, yeah. that's why I think things like Buffy is great because they're already in that position. Um, that's the world they live in and it's established. They don't have to sort of triumph um, with, you know, mm. to get their queer power and um, they're already there. And it's just a story within that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, you're right. And it's it's also this idea of like, you know, we're, we're scary to <laughs> to a lot of people. And actually it's 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 putting power behind that I mean, and and owning it and and mm. using that as a source of of strength rather than um weakness yeah and i just i just think this is it's really great and there's the one of the articles was talking about um this woman who's a, a member of a london coven and they went to uh they did a moonlight ritual to help one of their members uh, conceive through IVF and mm. um, she was having a lot of trouble and then she conceived a few weeks later and it was just and just that, like she'd found a lot of community and strength and kind of hope through that um, that exercise together. And I was just I just thought it sounded really nice because it's not just it's not just a queer community. Yeah, it's a queer community that also shares your spirituality. And I think that in the modern day, there is a fear of being spiritual. You know, mm. I think that definitely um, I have a couple of friends who, who are kind of secretly religious because mm. they think that they'll be sneered at, sneered at because of, of the kind of connotations of following a religion now. And, and actually there's nothing wrong with spirituality it's you yeah. know so long oh, as you're not hurting anyone you're not, you're not doing anything wrong it, it yeah i think it is is deeply um stigmatized within the lgbt community um yeah it kind of works both ways it's kind of you know reversed um discrimination mm. just you know through yeah. f fear of of being rejected maybe um and and also like probably a result of some really bad experiences in the past but you know discrimination of any kind is not is not acceptable and it doesn't really, it doesn't have a place in the queer community. Um, and it is, you know, it's a real shame that some people have to hide a part of themselves. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I really enjoyed learning about it. And I also really loved hearing, uh, hearing you talk today. It's just been really great. Um, I think we're going to go nap, actually. <laughs> yeah. You go back to bed um, and I can't wait for you to... Um bring your once you've read the book to kind of bring it to a book club or queer book club and um maybe a dramatic yeah, reading yeah. would be would be <laughs> definitely would be great perfect all right well sleep well mate cheers
Thanks Take for care. listening, everyone. Good night. Thank you. Bye.